Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. in part two of this series, no offense. I just want to say this real quick. I got to get going. But um, I love, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of people who listen via unfiltered radio that you may not know about on stations all over the place, um, watch online, podcast. And I think it's such a gift. It's such a huge tool that God uses. And many are not in our local area or they can't make it. But I would also just say this. Um, and maybe you experienced this morning, maybe you didn't. There is something um, that the Spirit of God does when you are in the room, in the house, that cannot be replicated any other way. And if you guys would, would you give it up for our worship team one more time for leading us the way they do? So I love that you can listen, watch, wherever you are, keep doing that. But man, if you are local and you can get in the house with other physical bodies, something just happens. It's just, there's just something special about it. Um, we are in this series, No Offense. And can we all just be honest about this? You have been the jerk in a relationship at some point along the way. Can I just start that way? Can you just admit that? Like at some point along the way, I mean, hopefully you haven't been the overtly toxic person um, or, you know, the person everybody's talking about because everybody knows those individuals. But at some point you, you were a jerk in your marriage relationship or you were the friend that was just off the rails for a little time. Like all of us have been there. And most of the time we spend most of like these times or these messages talking about how to fulfill Jesus' greatest commandment, which we should, and how to not be toxic and how to not be a jerk. Like, hey, go do that. Follow what Jesus said. Love him by loving other people. But this series is specifically on how you deal and how I deal with other difficult relationships around us, toxic relationships around us, because even if I don't know you, all of us have them. Like you either came out of one, you're in one, or you're going to be in one. And I don't mean like marriage, I'm talking about any relationship. It's a boss, um, it's an ex, it's a neighbor, it's the guy in the homeowners association, it's the community group that you left, it's the person at the 9 a.m. that forced you to come to the 11 a.m. today. It's like all over the place. We all have them. Now, here's what I mean specifically by difficult people, because we all define it differently. I'm talking about people that maybe at some level are deceptive at times, people that are even manipulative, um, unkind um, passive aggressive maybe is the way that you could define them. I mean, you could go on and on, but that's what I'm talking about. Now, what I'm not talking about is sexual or physical abuse. That's different. That's illegal. Next week, um, I'm doing a whole message to end this series on boundaries, which I've discovered is the message that you're most interested in. Everybody's like, just talk about that. So next week might be a good time if you need to set a boundary with somebody, low key, invite them, and just hopefully it'll take care of itself. Like I'll do the heavy lifting for you. So next week, we're gonna talk about boundaries. It's so important. There's such a biblical precedent because when we talk about handling difficult relationship, it doesn't even mean the relationship should continue. So we'll talk about that. But this is specifically creating a plan for those individuals around you that have the potential to derail you. Because if we can just be honest, it is really difficult to be kind to people who are unkind. 
It's very difficult to be sensitive to people who are insensitive. Let's just be honest. Very difficult to like maintain our chill with somebody who exhibits so much toxicity. And if you don't have a plan for those difficult people or relationships in your life, they will pull you in a direction that you don't want to go. Because here's what I think all of us would identify, whether we'd say it this way or not. Difficult people in our lives have the potential to gain a measure of control of our lives. Because what happens is you get in those difficult relationships around those people and it almost seems like, right, that you're forced into a response because of them, because of what they did, how they hurt you, what they said, how they responded. And, it almost, and you even say this sometimes, it almost feels like I don't have any choice. So at some level, they kind of pull you in their direction and you end up, without ever wanting to, kind of acting like them in response to them. Because here's what we said last week, difficult people always keep you off balance. And it's the same physically. When you start to lose balance, you do everything you can to kind of regain your equilibrium and get your balance back. That's in essence what difficult people do to you. And when you are off balance, you are oftentimes forced to compensate. So what happens is you're not really yourself. In fact, people have maybe said that around you. When you're with somebody, you're like, you don't even act like you're you. You don't even act like yourself. It's like your personality changes. And the reason for that is because in difficult relationships, you are off balance. You feel like you have to compensate and you're not even yourself because it just throws everything off because of maybe their unhealth, their lack of character, their toxicity. And it's really hard to function normally. And then all of a sudden, like we're all about the golden rule, right? But there becomes a point where our love for the golden rule, and yes, I'm all in with Jesus, and we should follow that, and that is great until you have been severely mistreated. And that everybody is for that until somebody that you are close to has been severely mistreated. And all of a sudden, the golden rule becomes the payback rule. Like, I'm going to do unto you as they've done unto me. And maybe in some cases, it's even worse. So here's what we started to answer last week is like, what do you actually do? Because there's a couple options. Number one, you could ignore them. And that's always a bad option. Because when you ignore difficult people or toxic people, you actually end up empowering them. Because just mark it down and you've got your own story is what you will end up doing is you'll stuff all of this stuff. You'll try to ignore it. And then all the while, they will wear you down. They will chip away at you, and then eventually you will react out of your anger. And come on, for a lot of us, isn't that the place where we have some of our greatest regrets? And it's not that they weren't in some ways deserving. We felt baited into it. Again, there was so much that was difficult around them. But the problem is we tried to ignore stuff and then reacted out of anger. And then the moment we did that, despite everything that they've done, we handed power back over to them. So ignoring doesn't work. The second thing we looked at last week that doesn't work is getting even. Because though at times it feels like, well, that, that would kind of be just, or I need some kind of equity in this relationship, or I need some kind of fairness, and all of us have felt that. When you start to get back or to pay back or to get even, the problem with that is you become even with somebody you don't even like. And that's not a place you want to go because in essence, what they do is they drag you in to their emotional and relational unhealth and you become somebody that you were never created to be. And here's what we said. It's never localized to the difficult relationship, is it? It travels like it's carry on luggage. It goes with you into other seasons in other relationships. And in essence, when you try to get back or pay back, it just never goes well. You end up being like somebody that you dislike. 
And so what's the third option? And here's what I want to talk about for a few minutes, because the third option, whether you actually do it or not, or take me seriously, that's up to you. But the third option gives you the potential to decrease the power that difficult people and relationships have over your life. And it allows you to begin to release some of that frustration that you are carrying towards somebody that is starting to seep out and sabotage other relationships in your life. And this third option keeps you from becoming like the person you dislike. And when I say dislike, I mean, Jesus loves them. And so do you, like hopefully at some level, you're, at least you're working in that direction. But as I said last week, sometimes I'm gonna love you from a distance, because of the nature of your character or that toxicity or that difficult relationship, I haven't been called to function in that because at some level, that can derail every other relationship in my life. And it's, I, I, at the end of the day, I don't wanna be moved to the level of unhealth that you're exhibiting toward me. And this third option is the option that keeps us from becoming just like them and sabotaging all of the other relationships in our life. And this third option, no surprise, is modeled and taught by Jesus all throughout the New Testament. But there's also a story that I started with last week. And this is modeled, I think, so profoundly in a woman by the name of Abigail who gets very little airplay in the Old Testament. In fact, I'm going to tell you a story that you may not even know or you just glossed over, but it is such a powerful example of this. And the reason we even know who Abigail is is because she's part of the backstory of David. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably know about David. David came to fame by like famous David and Goliath story. But this part of the story where Abigail intersects that I want to talk about, this is not during the reign of King David because he ultimately becomes king. This is during the, the season of David's life where he's fugitive David. He kills the, the Goliath, kills the giant. Immediately King Saul, who was, the, who was the king at the time, becomes jealous of David, sees David as a threat. And so basically like the whole idea of keep your enemies close, Saul brings David into his family because he realizes how much power and how much influence David has. I mean, at the time that he kills the giant, David immediately becomes a national hero. Everybody loves him. Everybody's following him. Everybody is writing about him. Like David is the guy, even though Saul's the king. They love David. And then for Saul, it gets worse because a rogue prophet basically pronounces over David that David would be the next king of Israel. And so immediately Saul's like, that is a threat to my dynasty. I'm not gonna let that happen. And he gets so angry and loses his mind that he tries to kill David and David goes on the run and basically ends up in the wilderness as an outlaw. He's running from Saul. He ends up collecting 600 other followers, David does, of people who also were mistreated by Saul and figured this was now the time to leave. They were gonna follow David as well. And so there David is with 600 men in the wilderness as a refuge, as an outlaw, as an enemy of Saul. And then this is an understatement. David is angry. David is hurt. David has been wronged in epic ways because he brought a lot of value to Saul's kingdom. And now no fault of his own, he is on the run. Saul's trying to kill him. His life is threatened. He's been completely disrespected. And he has got so much anger. And this is where you intersect with the story of Abigail and the backstory of this part of David's life. And I'm gonna catch you up to where we were last week and then I'm gonna I'm gonna intersect with where I wanna go this week with this third option. In 1 Samuel 25 two, this is basically the biographer for David's life. It says, a certain man in Moen who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy and he had a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep. 
which he was shearing in Carmel. And so I said this last week, just real quick pause. This is basically a meeting with his financial advisors to figure out how much profit they had made over the, the last year. So um, in their world, they measured it by sheep and goats. It means nothing to us, but for them, once they sheared sheep, it was like, this is how much bank we made. This is what my part portfolio looks like. We're doing really, really well. So that's what they were doing. Verse three, his name was Nabal. And his wife's name was Abigail, and she was intelligent, she was beautiful, but her husband was harsh and mean in his dealings. Basically, Nabal is like the guy nobody likes. Nobody likes working for him. It's a toxic corporate environment. His wife doesn't even like being married to him. Like the guy is off the rails. And David hears about his sheep shearing and he sends 10 men down to Nabal to go, hey, listen, um, I just have a request for you that maybe you would share some of your profits, David would say, with me and my men. And here's the reason that David requested this. He told his men, hey, go remind um, Nabal about this in verse seven. When your shepherds were with us, we didn't mistreat them. Which you're like, okay, well, that's kind of a, you know, that's a low bar. I mean, congratulations for not mistreating them. Well, you have to understand this culture, everybody mistreated everybody. Might made right. So generally, like bands of these raiders would go and invade and steal sheep, steal cattle, steal part of your profit. And so David's like, listen, we help protect you guys. My 600 men, we had your back the entire time. In fact, I kept my 600 men as well from raiding you because that's just what we do. And so I think that I'm entitled rightfully to some of your profit. And David was actually right. And so David sends this, these men to Nabal to make this request. And, and if you hear last week, here's Nabal's um, reply to David. They come back, they tell him everything, and he's like, who's David? Who's, who's the son of Jesse? Like, who is this guy? Remind me again. How do you spell it? And he's like completely throwing shade on, on David because everybody knows who David is. Nobody's forgotten the story of David and Goliath. Nobody's forgotten the songs that are written about him. But immediately, Nabal goes passive aggressive. and He's like, I don't even know who he is. I didn't ask for his help. And so I'm not obligated to give him any of my profits. I don't owe him anything, which was massively disrespectful to David. So verse 12, David's men turned around, went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And if you're here last week, you know this isn't the point where David's like, well, we tried. No, David's like, get your sword. Because that's what David did. Everybody, grab your sword. We're going to go get him because this is just what we do. So each of them strapped on their sword. And then David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David. And as we said, Nabal is an idiot. He's disrespected David. David's already dealing with hurt and anger. But what David is about to do is a massive overreaction. It is completely disproportionate. And he's about to enter in what would be a massacre if they get there. And all the while, it says in the text that David's riding along and he's justifying in his mind like we do. Well, here's what he did and here's why he's wrong and this is why I need to get back and this is why I'm justified. But the whole, the whole time he's doing it, David's trying to convince himself about something he's not really sure about because David knows. Like, dude, it's an overreaction. I don't think your problem is really with Nabal. I think your problem's with somebody else. And so verse 21, David's rehearsing his mind. It's been useless. All my watching over this dude's property and is in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. And he's paid me back evil for good. And this is the point where David thinks like we do. I don't have any choice. Like when you're that overt, when you're, when you're that like hurtful toward me, when you're that disrespectful, it almost seems like you've chosen the response for me. And so David's like, may God deal with me, David, be it ever so severely. If by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. 
You're like, David, I get it, man, but seriously? Like, that's a tad, like, overreactive. That's a tad disproportionate. And I said last week, in case this ruins your Sunday school, like, version of David and the caricature that we create or the hero status we give him, and there's moments where he has that. David was ruthless. David was dangerous. David would lead his men into a village, and when he would leave that village, nobody would be left alive. Like, you didn't mess with David. And here David is, and he is so angry, and he is so hurt. And so the moment he's disrespected, he starts to power up, has his guys grab their swords. He's about to go with this massive overreaction, disproportionate response. And the whole time, his issue isn't even with Nabal. His issue is with Saul. The frustration, the anger, and the disrespect that now he's been carrying for a while. And this is the moment that he's going to release all of that frustration on somebody else. And so here's where we left off last time to go back to where Nabal's doing his sheep shearing event or, you know, convention. Verse 14, they're counting all their profits. They're figuring out how much they gained over this last year. Verse 14, it says, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, you guys with me? Okay, I wasn't convincing. David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our masters greetings, but he hurled insults at them. So they're telling Abigail, and Abigail's married to him. She's like, well, that's not a surprise. Verse 15, yet these men were very good to us. Like legitimately, David has a case. They didn't mistreat us. The whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. The whole time they had our back while we were herding the sheep that was near them. And then verse 17, now think it over and see what you can do. Like, hey, Abigail, you know your husband. But if anybody's going to get through to him and if anybody's going to listen, like he's going to listen to you. So, so go try to convince him because they know David. Disaster's hanging over our master and his whole household and FYI over us. He is such a wicked man that nobody can talk to him. Again, that's no surprise to you. So Abigail, act quickly. Like, you got to do something. You're the only one that can get through to him. And yes, Nabal has treated him really badly. But come on, David is like in some kind of rage. He's heading down here with like 400 men and they all have swords. And they asked Abigail to act. And so here's what Abigail did. You can go back and read it for yourself. But it's the only way I can describe this. She basically creates a food and wine festival of donkeys for miles. So she gets all of these donkeys together and she loads a bunch of wine up on them. She loads a bunch of cakes up on them, a bunch of, you know, bread and just, I mean, decks out all of these donkeys. And so she creates this, this is like their version of food trucks, this massive like food donkey caravan of like hundreds of donkeys. And her whole goal is to feed about 400 of these men, which is really important. And so in verse 19, Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell, for obvious reasons, her husband, Nabal. Now, meanwhile, David is riding along with his sword and with his men, and they're ready to get back and enter in this disproportionate response. (laughs) And it says that David is coming up over the mountain, and he comes up into the clear, and all he sees from miles is the food and wine donkey festival, like wine everywhere, food everywhere, like all of this stuff everywhere. And in that moment, it ruins all of David's momentum. Like, have you ever been in those, like, those moods where you're on your way to, I want to get back, and I want to say what I need to say, and I want to make sure they hear it, and then somebody ruins it for you? 
Like you go to like, hey, don't apologize until I tell you what I need to tell you. Or somebody comes back and they give some level of kindness. And there's almost a part of you that gets a little bit annoyed because you had your speech down really good and you wanted to tell them off before they apologized. Uh, Just me? Okay. So that's... (laughs) That's where me and David are at. And so David's coming down. He's already, but like, how do you maintain all of that anger in the midst of hundreds of donkeys with wine? So that's where he is. And David comes into the clear. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey, bowed down. This is so important. Before David with her face to the ground. And I just want to make this, this real quick point because I think this is so powerful with what you see next and what Abigail does and the part that she plays. I think in David's life and David's future, though she never gets a lot of credit, she begins to speak to David as if David is the man that she hopes he's going to become. But she speaks to David not where David currently is. She speaks to David toward this future self that she is hoping and praying that David is ultimately going to become. And listen, can we just say this? And I know you know it already, but we just need the reminder. Your words have the power to shape things. Your words have the power to shape people. Your words have the power to shape shape circumstances. Your words can create vision for the future. Your words at some level can even create the future at, at some like lesser degree, but your words are extraordinarily powerful. And they're extraordinary power, extraordinarily powerful when somebody else is speaking them over you, even if you know in that moment what they're speaking is something you haven't achieved yet. It has the power to direct, to give vision, to cause you to rise to this different level. When you speak hope, when you speak vision, when you speak this kind of preferred version of what they can become and specifically what God would have them become, sometimes it is the catalyst to change the trajectory of somebody's life. Like they need to hear it from somebody. And they don't just need to hear where they are. They need somebody to give them vision about where God can take them and speak to them as if who they're going to become is who they are in this moment. It's, uh, just stop. (laughs) If you're not sure, just stop. We'll see if it gets better. Like here's the thing I would just say real quick before I move on, just one more thing. I think this is so important with your kids because I think it's so easy to spend a lot of our time praising what they do and that's just kind of the default of our culture. I think you should spend four times as much time just speaking vision over them in regard to who they are and who you believe that they can become as Jesus begins to work in their life. Like over and over and over and over again. What you do is a byproduct, it is the lesser thing. They need to hear from you, come on. Culture, the world in general, is going to beat them down. I think one of your primary goals is to not be naive, not create this false version of reality, but dang it, to speak future and vision over their life and give them a picture of who God wants them to become and sometimes begin to speak to them as if they have already achieved what God wants to do in their life. And so in a minute, that's exactly what Abigail does. And so she fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, let me speak to you, which is just part of their culture. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal, who's my husband. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him like she's aware. 
And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. Basically, all Abigail is saying is, I didn't even know you sent 10 of your men to talk to my husband and that he ignored you and disrespected you because you have every right to some of his profit. This is a legitimate claim. And he treated you really badly. And Abigail's like, I had no idea. But verse 26, now my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, I love this. This is speaking to the future and not the reality of the moment. Since the Lord has kept you, David, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. And David's like, he did? Because actually, Abigail, I'm on my way to avenge myself. I don't know if you see the sword strapped to my donkey or not. And all of these guys are holding swords, not because we're a part of some festival. We are on our way to get retribution and pay them back. And, and Abigail begins to speak to David and go, David, no, no, that's not the person you are. God has kept you from bloodshed. And David's like, are you sure? And Abigail's like, yes. Because you're better than what you're about to do. This is not you. This is not who God's creating and making you to be. And then verse 27, and let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. And so basically, the gift was the food and wine festival of donkeys, which makes it really hard at this point for David to go pillage and ransack these people because Abigail has already given him the very thing he's after. So it just destroys all of his momentum, all of his angst, because the very thing he was going after now, she's already given it to him. And so verse 28, the Lord your God, Abigail said, certainly will make a lasting dynasty for my Lord David because you fight the Lord's battles. And David's like, I do? Yeah, you don't know it yet, but you do. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live, David. And David's like, it won't? No, no, I swear. I, I'm telling you, like where you're going, what God has for you, this isn't it. This isn't who you are. One more side note. I can't do too many of these, but I just think this is so important. Like every relationship, our, our dynamic, or our default is always to assume the worst rather than believe the best. And listen, there's times, we'll talk about this last week, where somebody will give you all of the evidence that you should assume the worst. And by that time, not to be naive, then you need to do something about it. There's a point where a relationship needs to end. But in a lot of cases, that relationship gets there because we decided over and over again to assume the worst rather than believe the best. And even if that person ultimately verifies the fact that they can't be trusted, you really have no benefit in going down the road of believing the worst in your relationships because it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. But when you decide in some of the relationships that are closest to you that actually are gonna last, when you decide, I'm going to choose to believe the best rather than assume the worst, what happens in some of those relationships is they actually move to the level of your trust and your vision over their life. And so Abigail's like, I'm telling you, you're not who you're gonna be, but you're gonna get there. And David, I just wanna speak to you about your future for a second. In verse 29, even though someone is pursuing to take your life, the life of my Lord is gonna be bound, I love this wording, securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord, your God. Basically what Abigail's saying is, I, I know this is legit. I know your offense is legit. I know that you have every reason to be angry. I know what Saul did to you. I know why you're on the run. I know that somebody is legitimately trying to steal your life. I just want you to know your life is safe with God. 
that God is with you. And David, God will avenge you. And then I love what Abigail does in this moment, and maybe she does it because she sees David's sword strapped to his donkey, and we looked at this last week, but the sword that David had was the very sword that he took from Goliath when he killed Goliath. It was a visual reminder of what God had already done. And Abigail looks at David and takes David back to his 15-year-old self. When he was facing down this giant that was taunting the God of Israel and was threatening the nation and nobody was willing to stand up to him. And Abigail goes, David, do you remember that kid? Like, do you remember what you felt? You stood before a giant and you had no military skills. You had no ability to fight. You had never taken one class. You didn't even have armor that fit you. All you had was this faith that God had promised something, this faith that God had a destiny and a will for your life. And somehow you had enough faith as a 15-year-old that outstretched the faith of 45-year-olds to believe that God had a promise and a will and a destiny for the nation of Israel. And you went up against a giant with no skills, with no training, with no intellect in order to fight this kind of enemy. And you faced down a giant with a slingshot and you brought a nation to its knees because God fought on your behalf when nobody else was willing to fight. And God proved to you that day as a 15-year-old kid, God will provide. God's promise is secure. God will be with you every step of the way. David, if anybody should know this, it's you. Look at your sword and remember, do you know where that sword came from? You don't have to get even. You don't have to pay him back. You don't have to repay evil for evil. And David, I don't know, Abigail would say, how this is going to turn out. I'm not saying my husband is ever going to change. I live with him. I'm not saying the toxic person is ever going to stop being toxic, but David, I know that you are better than this. And however it works out for them, here's what I know. God's with you. God's for you. God will repay. God will avenge. You have already experienced it in your life. You do not need to take this into your own hands. And in essence, she speaks to David's future and she asks without asking this question over David. Verse 29 but the lives of your enemies, he's going to hurl away. And she's referring back to David and Goliath from the pocket of a sling. And basically what she's declaring and, and asking David is, David, I know you have a lot of emotion right now. I know what you want in the moment. I know it feels equitable. I know it feels like justice. I know it feels like fairness. One day some of this emotion is going to subside. One day you're going to get past all of the raw feelings that are so present in this moment. And this event, as emotional as it is right now, it's just going to be a story. So David, when this is just a story you tell, what kind of story do you want to tell? Because I don't think this is you. And when the Lord, verse 30, has fulfilled from my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, because, hey, David, God's got a plan for your life. My Lord will not have on his conscience. This is so important. David, you're not going to carry the burden, the staggering burden of needless bloodshed over having avenged yourself. That is not who you are. David, that's a better story. 
That's the story you're going to want to tell your kids. That's the story you're going to want your kids to tell your grandkids. And in this moment, it's like David snaps out of it and he realizes, I'm acting like someone I don't like. I am being like someone I dislike. I am being pulled into all of the emotional and relational unhealth that I despise. And in some ways, I may be forfeiting the future that God has for my own life because of them, because of their dysfunction. And so David said to Abigail, verse 32, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day because you were able to see something in myself I didn't see and from avenging myself with my own hands. Verse 35, I have heard your words and I have granted your requests. And before I finish the story, I would just say this, because this is why I love Abigail. At some point in your life, and maybe it's right, right now, everybody needs an Abigail in their life. Like everybody needs somebody to talk us down when the emotion gets so high. And can I just tell you this? Because they, they may be present right now and you don't want to lean into their voice. We need to have the wisdom to listen to them. I mean, here's David. He's got 600 men. He's got people all around it and nobody would tell him the truth. Nobody would talk him down. And it's Abigail, the lone voice to go, hey, David, this is not who you are and this is not the road that you wanna go down. We need to have the wisdom to listen and lean into people who will give us a vision of our preferred future in the moment where we can't see it and we are so blinded by our hurt and by our anger. We need somebody who will remind us that maybe what we want immediately may be the thing that's going to rob us of what we want ultimately. And that when our emotion and the anger and the frustration and all of the stuff that we're maybe carrying from over here, but we're starting to, to level it on this relationship or this person, that what we feel is right right now to get equity, to get fairness, to get justice, what we feel is right in the moment, it might haunt us later. And Abigail was the lone individual to go, David, this is not who you are. And one day this is going to be a story you tell. Don't go down this road. And then I'm just going to read the last couple. I almost didn't want to finish the story just because it, it seemed a little bit too HBO meets Hallmark and like how it, a bow just tied on the end almost seemed. But this is how the story ended. This was the narrative. So I'm going to read it. It's a little over the top. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in his house holding a banquet like that of a king. And he was high in spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. And then in the morning, because she's smart, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things. And his heart failed him and he became like stone. And then about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And then verse 39 then David sent word to Abigail. And this is, this is kind of where the HBO part meets Hallmark. <laughs> asking her to become his wife, which is so romantic. <laughs> Could not write it better. And then verse 42, Abigail quickly got on a donkey. <laughs> you should read the Bible. And attended to her five female servants and went with David's messengers and became his wife. The end. That's the end. And they live happily ever after. Until you read the rest of <clears throat> Samuel's account. You have three characters. You have three responses. You have one hero. And David's not even close to making hero status in this story. You have Nabal who repays evil for good, and he legitimately did. I mean, it was, 
it, it was wrong, it was out of control, his disrespect for David, and then David comes back and it's evil for evil. It's I'm gonna get back, I'm gonna repay, I'm gonna get even, I'm gonna make sure you don't disrespect me. And it wasn't even at Nabal, he's carrying all of his stuff from Saul. And then you've got Abigail, who enters into the story, never gets a lot of airplay, and she is the one individual that repays good for evil. You have Nabal, who's maniacal, who's crazy, who's off the rails. You have David, who is just predictable. This is kind of what everybody does. I mean, without the caravan of donkeys and swords. But this is what everybody does when, like, you're face down, you've been disrespected. There's something about it where you can justify it. And it feels like fairness is on the line. That's what David did. It's so predictable. And then I love Abigail's story because Abigail moves herself into the narrative on these few pages where she gets some airplay and she does what is remarkable. And so I just want to end you with this before we, before we finish this series next week talking about boundaries is like you've got a choice. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I always want to say this, you can do whatever you want. I mean, you never signed on to the Jesus thing. There's so many of you that listen, watch, listen via radio, are in the house. And at some level, we've created our church with you in mind. Like, I'm not sure if I believe, I don't know about my faith. Oh, you, you pick and choose. You can do whatever you want. But I'm just telling you, this is the invitation of Jesus if you ever decide to follow Jesus. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, we don't really have any choice. We have been called to be remarkable. We have been called to respond in a remarkable way. And I understand that is much easier to say than it is to do when we start telling our story. And the only thing that gives me confidence to even talk about this is because it is the example of the message of Jesus and what he's modeled for us. It is everything that God did through, uh, for us through Christ, that Jesus came in human flesh to repay evil with good, knowing that we may turn our back on him. And he says to us, I know they don't deserve it. I know it's hard. I know that they severely hurt. I know that that thing cannot be minimized. I know that you still carry the scars. This isn't even about them. This is about you. This is about what I've called you into. And you're not like everybody else. This is countercultural, upside down kingdom. You have the spirit of God inside of you. You are a follower of Jesus. And I understand their toxicity. I understand their level of unhealth. So Jesus would say, I don't want you to move to that level. You are a different person. You are a son and you are a daughter of God. And I want you to do for them what I have modeled for you. I want you to live a remarkable story. I want you to respond in a remarkable way. And I want you to do what nobody else does. And I want you to do what culture doesn't praise. And I want you to do what your friends will say is naive. I want you to live remarkably. We would call it amazing grace. That while you were still in your sin and at your worst, Christ died for you. When he knew everything that was still ahead for me, because all of my sin was, was still future, when he knew every thought, when he knew every just messed up thing in my mind, when he knew everything that you don't want to tell somebody else about, that thing that just maybe you hide in shame, when God knew of it all, Christ died for you while you were still in the middle of your sin. And now Jesus says to you and to me, I want you to follow me. Here's how Luke records it. I want you to love your enemies. Really, you mean like tolerate them and ignore them? No, no, no. I mean, I want you to love them. Which is, come on, it's just as shocking and hard 2,000 years later as it was when Jesus introduced these words. I want you to love your enemies. 
And I mean love is in this. I want you to do good to those who hate you. And like in my mind, I'm like, I'm doing good if I just don't hurt them. Like this is another level. I want you to, not, not just ignore, I want you to actively and proactively do good to those who hate you. And again, as we're gonna look at next week, I can't promote it enough. It doesn't mean the relationship should continue, but Jesus is like, I want this to be the posture of your heart. And then verse 28, it gets worse. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And you're like, does anybody do that? I even pray for people I like half the time. He's like, this is the level I want you to go. And it sounds great, right, until you are the one who's been mistreated. It sounds great until it's your daughter who's been mistreated. It sounds great until it's somebody who's close to you and all of the anger rises to the surface. But Jesus says, listen, this is what it means to participate in my kingdom ethic. I want you to not just do something to them. I want you to do something for them. I want you to bless those who curse you, who literally are actively against you. And I want you to pray for those who mistreat you. And maybe that prayer just starts with, because I've experienced this in my life, hey God, I hate them, but I'm gonna start praying about them and I'm trusting you to change my heart. Because you know what they've done, you know it's not easy for me to let go of, but I wanna actively participate in what it means to follow you. And come on, this is the heart of Jesus' message. This is what he is inviting us into. And he says, listen, I get how ridiculous this is. I get how countercultural this is. I get that nobody else really does this. You're a follower of Jesus. I've given up everything for you. I want you to follow me. And then last thing, this is not really last thing, like last two things, I'm gonna go really quick. But this is so important if none of that is compelling for you, and I hope it is. But here's what you need to listen to me about if you don't do anything about this. This is the only way, and I mean this, this is the only way that you keep yourself from becoming just like them. See, it may not be about them. They may never change. This is about your freedom. This is about God's will for your life. This is about what God envisions for your relationships and your future and the next decade. And this is the only way that you can ensure that you do not become like them. Because the moment you opt for one of the other options you drag yourself into all of their relational and emotional unhealth and you become a person that you were never designed to become. And then even more than that, you become like your father in heaven who the writer of Luke says is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. That's just hard. So I'm just gonna leave you this really hard question because if you've got some difficult people in your life, it's an ex, it's a boss, somebody you're married to right now, it's a kid, it's an in-law, it's a neighbor, it's a business deal gone bad. What would it look like, just go with me, you don't have to do it, what would it look like if you were to return in that relationship to that person good for evil? Because evil for evil, you can do that, everybody does that, that's predictable. Good for evil, that's remarkable. And as we said last week, do not write a predictable story about your life. Write a remarkable story. And the more difficult that person is, the brighter the opportunity for your light to shine. 
the brighter for the contrast to be. And it may not change anything in them, but I'm telling you, it will change something in you and you will become most like your heavenly father. So. Do you want to be even with somebody that you don't even like? Do you want to be like somebody you dislike? Wouldn't you rather be ahead, meaning wouldn't you rather move into the destiny and the will and the emotional and the relational health that God has for your life? And what story do you want to tell when this is just a story you tell? And what would it look like? I just really want to land on this fourth question. What would it look like to return good for evil? And I'm just, I'm just saying, yeah, I think you owe it to yourself to at least try to answer that question. What would it look like to return good for evil? And you don't even have to do anything about it, but to begin to ask that question. And then if you answer that question, you do it. Oh, you want to use hyperbole, but nobody does that. that that's remarkable. And that makes you most like your heavenly father. And I just think it might be a decision for some of you, and some of you have the story already, it might be a decision that you talk about for the rest of your life. And for some of you who are caught up in some multi-generational stuff and nobody has been able to loosen the chains of that, it might be, that decision might be a story that your kids talk about. And last thing, I think if the church began to take this seriously, heck, let's just start with Centerpoint. If Centerpoint takes this seriously with the influence that God has given us, if the church took this one command of Jesus in terms of how to follow him, if we took this seriously, the face and the reputation of the church would change. That one thing. You can worry about all the political influence you want. Does almost no good. Mostly it hurts the church. You can talk all about how to legislate morality. You can talk about all of the seven things you think you should do and being more moral and attending church more and some kind of revival defined in those terms. I'm telling you, it all comes down to that one thing. If we would just repay evil for good, if we would bless those that we think are against us, if we would be the people that prayed for our enemies, the face and the reputation of the church would change. Would you stand with me all over the house? God, I just pray for you in this moment? online. I'd love for you to, to join us, Jesus. I thank you so much for, for what you're doing. And I um, was well aware coming into this series that this is one of those topics that's like a grenade. And I know I launched a, a bunch of stuff that some of us didn't really want to confront or think about. And it brought things to the forefront of our mind and emotions that are not comfortable. And I, I understand all of that. And so I just pray with the full veracity of your grace that you would meet those feelings with the fact that you are good that you are with us, that you are for us, when it feels like maybe we're being mistreated and taken advantage of and nobody sees. And so we just feel like we're forced into response. I, I pray, unlike any other time that we've experienced, there would be this calming move of the Spirit of God in us to just reassure us that you are with us and you are for us. And one day you will right every injustice. And you will bring good out of every wrong and you will fight on our behalf and you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. And if there's payback that's needed, that's in your hands. And that somehow you would give us the ability and the courage and the trust to rest in you in this moment and do not what is predictable, 
but what is countercultural and that is other and that is honestly so unique that it's almost weird. We would do what is remarkable and that we would shine like stars in the midst of darkness that would glorify our Father in heaven. So give us the courage to do what you're asking us to do and give us wisdom to know what that is. And then God help us to trust that you're gonna do what we can't do on our behalf, knowing that we're your sons and your daughters. And so I pray that you would use this wherever it hits. And I pray in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.